New Dimensions Radio has been making a difference on our planet since 1973, thanks to the generosity of our listeners. You too can help make a difference with a tax-deductible donation or membership. Please visit our website, newdimensions.org, and just click the Donate button. We at New Dimensions thank you for your support. It is only through a change in human consciousness that the world will be transformed. The personal and the planetary are connected. As we expand our awareness of mind, body, psyche, and spirit, and bring that awareness actively into the world, so also will the world be changed. This is our quest as we explore new dimensions. must first imagine something before it can manifest. So today we'll be imagining a world with justice and liberation for all, a place where abundance is universally shared, where science and spirituality have quit being opposite ends of a pole, but have merged a time when everyone has the opportunity to learn and love. In order to do this, our guest today says we must go far beyond merely signing petitions or making monetary contributions. We must find a way to engage people ever deeper in the ongoing process of transformation. We must make building a regenerative and resilient society our dedicated focus. We must also make it fun, seductive, and inspiring. We'll be exploring this together with our guest, Daniel Pinchback. Daniel Pinchback has been described as a radical futurist. He's a philosopher and keen cultural observer. He was featured in the 2010 documentary, 2012 Time for Change, and host of the talk show Mind Shift on Gaim TV. He directed the think tank Center for Planetary Culture, His essays and articles have appeared in a vast range of publications, including The New York Times, Esquire, Rolling Stone, Art Forum, Dazed and Confused, The Village Voice, and many other publications. In 2007, Daniel launched the web magazine Reality Sandwich and co-founded Evolver.net. Evolver currently includes Evolver Learning Labs, a webinar platform, and the Evolver Network, a nonprofit initiative. Daniel also edited the publishing imprint Evolver Editions with North Atlantic Books. He's the author of Breaking Open the Head, a Psychedelic Journey into the Heart of Contemporary Shamanism, and 2012, The Return of Quetzalcoatl, and a new book, How Soon Is Now? From Personal Initiation to Global Transformation. Join us for the next hour as we explore the need for an intentional redesign of our outmoded global operating systems with our guest, Daniel Pinchback. I'm Justine Willis-Toms. I'll be your host. Welcome to New Dimensions. Daniel, welcome. Thanks for having me. It's my pleasure. I'd like to just start off going to a story that you tell in your book about 
experiencing the Sandy hurricane, and that was like a, a moment for you to sort of relook at things. Can you describe what that was like? Uh, the Sandy hurricane, uh, uh, the one in 2012? Yes. Um, well, yeah, I guess that was the one that really hit New York really hard. Uh, and, you know, it made me very aware of, of how you know fragile our systems were and, and how... Um, how easily things could, you know, go haywire, you know, and, and it's definitely a big reminder of climate change and the possibility of sea level rise and, and all of that type of stuff. So, in, and there was like no power for, yeah. for what, three days or yeah, something? Yeah, yeah, yeah. So yeah. It, it just, it just really reminded you of, as you say, how fragile things can be in a moment. Yeah. So uh, it, let's talk about how, how you are viewing where we are and what we can do. And I know one of your main premises is that we need to know the territory we're in. We need to know it. Uh, and a lot of people don't really understand exactly the, the crisis that we're in. So I'd love for you to describe a little bit about our present mega crisis. Sure. I mean, um, yeah, I, I guess the context that I would just offer before is like, you know, the, the, in, in my new book, How Soon Is Now, I look at, you know, the ecological crisis, but I see it also as an opportunity, as a kind of potential for a global awakening. And I, and I see it potentially as like a rite of passage or, or initiation that could shift humanity from its present sort of self-involved, uh, self-interested kind of ego-based state to something more, you know, inclusive, transcendent or whatever. But uh yeah, I mean, you know, the ecological data is definitely very frightening. And obviously most people don't focus on it and the media doesn't, you know, focus on it too much. But we're losing like 150 to 200 species a day. And they estimate there's like 8.2 million species on the planet. So we're losing about 10% of the Earth's biodiversity every 10 to 15 years. And that's because we're deforesting, we're, we're you know, spoiling out of the tropical jungles and so on. We have like 400 parts per million of CO2, carbon dioxide in the atmosphere. The last time there was this much CO2 in the atmosphere, sea levels were 100 feet higher, temperatures were four degrees warmer. So that's like inexorably where we would head to um, now. Uh, but it doesn't happen incrementally over many centuries. It happens more through like sudden jumps. So we're seeing like, you know, in this region, right? Lots of forest fires every year. You know, and those are, you know, because even a small change in temperature is drying out the forests, which is leading to more fires, which is releasing more carbon. The, car the forests are carbon sinks, you know. So there's all these different feedback loops in the system that are getting engaged. And, um, yeah, kind of the argument of the book is that this really is what needs to become our, our collective focus, you know, not on, you know, financial capital, you know. And as you talk about it, you, you said that it's like an initiation that we're having, that it's a, this can be looked as a rite of passage, I guess you could call it. Can you say something about, I mean, it's so frightening to think of all these facts and all, what is going on, and we want to just turn away from it. We naturally do. But if we look at it, we can also look at it as something that possibly will wake us all up and that we will go into deciding to cho choose other things. Can you say something Sure. I mean, that's kind of the basic idea of the book. I mean, um, we're facing something that could lead to our extinction as a species. 
Uh, you know, we know, for instance, there's like these huge deposits of methane, you know, that are frozen under the Arctic and the Siberian, you know, peat, peat frost, whatever they peat bugs, they get, you know, as they as they melt, they erupt, and they release a lot of carbon, you know, CO2, sorry, methane, you know, gas, which is which is a bunch of, more of a heat trapping gas than CO2. And um, yeah, that caused like the Permian mass extinction, like you know, millions and millions of years ago, when ninety-five percent of all life on Earth went again, went extinct. So yeah, I mean, if we if we care about our future descendants, you know, now would be the time when we would have to stop like distracting ourselves from uh, what's happening, because yeah, we 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 know many things that we can do, um, and we could really, as I said, yeah, look at it as a, a kind of spiritual mission, you know, because in a way like, um, uh, you know, humanity does best when it has a, a common goal and uh, something that, that brings us together to, to act to act together. Just like um, an example of World War II. Exactly. When we tooled up, can uh, d- describe that for us? Yeah, well, apparently after the Pearl Harbor attack, the United States shifted all of its factory production to wartime needs and they taxed the wealthiest people in the society at 94 percent and they used all of that money to to you know to feed the common foe so you know when we look at what's happening with climate change um, and the other ecological issues that's kind of what humanity would need to do on a global level would be to say okay like we're going to take 10 20 years and, and this will be our focus we're going to address this for the health of future generations and then we could probably move on and, and in and addressing it we could actually make the society we could improve a lot on, on our social design and we can think about how like um, you know we could move into a post-work society you know like with automation um well, let's talk about that for a moment. Um, so first of all, what you're saying is that there is a precedent that we have moved quickly in the past. We have shown that we could do that. And then now you're talking about the kinds of changes we need. A lot of us depend on uh, thinking that, oh, technology is going to really do it for us. And technology might add something. There might be some things there that we'll talk about. But you're talking about it's it's a it's a change also in consciousness and you you talk about changing the social design and then you mentioned a post work situation what does that mean what does that yeah, look well, I mean, like first of all to back up a little bit i think like you know we have a little bit of a of a lack of imagination in terms of how we think what our you know society could be so like we're very focused on the idea that progress, you know, has to be in one, one direction. You know, so for instance, like over the modern period, the idea was that country living was boring and nobody wants to be a farmer. So all the farmers, all the country people come to the cities, they work these industrial jobs and city life is more exciting and more interesting. You know, and, and there's some truth to that. But but now for, for you know, we need to think about the fact that like our agricultural system, which has now become very industrial and corporate, is also having a very destructive impact on the earth. Like, um, you know, according to the UN, we have like 60 years of harvest left with this current uh, agricultural system because it depletes to- topsoil. So we're losing the world's topsoil. But we now know that there are other farming practices that actually replenish and restore 
topsoil. They just happen to be more labor intensive and uh, require would require you know, more people learning more complex skills about how to work with the land and then sending them back into the countryside. So for instance, permaculture or no-till farming is a way to keep CO2 in the soil or uh, organic you know, farming. And they, actually they produce better yields and better food, but it's more, more labor intensive. So yeah, what we'd have to do is, is you know, in a way shift our, our ideology and our vision of what progress consists of at this point and say, okay, like, you know, there are also so many people who are out of work or are going to be out of work as, as time goes on, you know, so why not uh, retrain those people and, and, and we can kind of repopulate the countryside and, and have people, you know, create communities and, and, and grow food in a, in a healthy manner that restores the land. Exactly. And you say no-till. That I'm reminded of a book I read years ago. I think Fukuoka has One Straw Revolution about um, broadcasting seeds and, and without planting them. And it just was a marvelous way of, of farming yeah. that he was looking at that went back centuries. You know, in, in my book, I tried to put together a lot of you know, kind of uh, ideas about things, ways could change, you know, projects that have already shown things could change a certain way. But I probably don't know about a ton of them also. Right. Because it's, you know, there's been a huge amount of experimentation. If you look at like, like I talk about in Africa, like the Sahel region, you know, the farmers there started to like plant trees everywhere and they were able to reverse desertification and so on. So yeah, there's there's tons of uh, of uh, examples. Examples. Huh? Yeah. yeah, I'm here with Daniel Pinchback. He's the author of How Soon Is Now, and if you want to know more about his work, you can go to his website, howsoonisnow.info, or you can get there through the New Dimensions website, newdimensions.org. I'm Justine Willis-Toms. You're listening to New Dimensions. here with Daniel Pinchback. He's a radical futurist, a philosopher, and he's the author of How Soon Is Now? From Personal Initiation to Global Transformation. Daniel, we're talking about new social designs, new um, industrial designs. Can we, let's talk a little bit about new economic designs, because I know that you say that in there's a correlation between economics and the inequality of wealth. So they have to be solved together, so to speak. Can you talk about that? Sure. I mean, first of all, I'd like just step back. Like what I tried to do in the book 
was first of all understand the situation that we're in, like the you know we talked about the ecological issues, and obviously there's geopolitical issues and so on. Um, and, and in fact, you could look at something like Trump's selection, even or Brexit, you know, having to do with climate change and Syrian refugees and fear of immigration and fear of refugees and so on. And a lot of those refugees are being caused by droughts and by climate change. So it's all kind of an integrated circumstance, right? And you know, there's sets of technical changes we have to make if we want to flourish and thrive as a species. So those include changing our farming system towards regenerative farming, shifting to 100% renewable energy, not over like 50 or 100 years, but maybe over like you know, 10, 15, 20 years, which we could do if it was like the Second World War and we, we banded together and we're like, this is what we need to do as a species. We got to do it right now. Uh, and then in terms of industry, because industry is very exploitative and destructive of the environment, how we can shift our in industry practices to be what William McDonough talks about as cradle to cradle. So they actually support you know, biodiversity. They're not so you know, toxic and ultimately not toxic at all. But to make those types of changes, we also have to make changes in our social systems, in our political and economic systems. And so the book also looks at different you know, approaches to that. And yeah, currently we have increasing economic inequality. I think it's now like five or six people control more wealth than half the world's population. You know, wealth has been concentrating up the pyramid, which is what this guy like Thomas Piketty realized in this book, Capital. And he wasn't even like a left-wing economist. He was pretty conservative. But the, 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 the system, the economic system now works like a funnel, which pulls resources up to, to the top, to those who already have too much and away from those who, who could use it. So, and, and also the money system in itself is based on, on debt. Um, your money is created out of debt when you go to a bank to get a loan, you know, they issue the loan, but they don't issue you the interest on the loans. So you have to then compete against everybody else in society. So the money system is designed to force competition and art, creates artificial scarcity and creates winners and losers and, and, uh, and bankruptcies and so on. So it's, it's pretty, pretty inherently destructive. And I mean, Bernard Leotard, who's a Belgian eco economist, talks about it as a, as a yang currency, that we have a, a monoculture money system that's just supports masculine, kind of aggressive, competitive values. And so his idea is that we need countervailing, you know, other ways of exchanging value that support different values. And so he looks at community currencies that you find around the world. You know, there's timeshare systems, time dollars. Uh, he proposes a, a trading currency called the Terra, which would have, be, uh, have a negative interest charge. So it's sort of like has a timestamp on it. And as soon as you have it, it starts to lose value. So rather than seeking to hoard it, which wouldn't work, you then want to just keep it in circulation, which is kind of interesting because that's also you know more how blood and energy circulates through through an organism, through a body. You know, it's like the, the, our bodies don't hoard you know energy in a few cells and deprive the rest of the cells of life. It, it circulates. So that's that's another kind of basic theory of the book is that we can learn a lot from evolutionary biology, and we can even think about humanity as kind of a giant organism, like a huge super planetary super organism that is always in a symbiotic relationship with the earth as a whole system. Uh, but then we would have to think about how we change our social systems, our technical systems to, to you know, support the health of the whole, the whole body, the whole organism. You know? I want to remind our listeners or, or inform our listeners, if you want to know more about the work of Bernard Leotar, just go to our website, uh, put in the tag um, ec uh, economy, something like that, and, and he'll pop up with several interviews that we've done with him about that economic system. So uh, 
it really gives us another whole view, as you say, to look at an economic system not based on scarcity, but one based on abundance in some ways, and, and that keeps the circulation going. So that, but that, Daniel, uh, huge. I mean, we're talking about a huge shift in the way we create wealth and in, in abundance in the world. I mean, we're so used to this other economic system. I'm trying to get to grab hold of how will this, how will this start to give us a tipping point towards a new way of doing, of, of doing economics and doing exchange? How can we actually start to move toward this in a, a real way? What What are the first steps we can take as individuals and as a small collectives? Yeah, I mean, it's, you know, since we don't have totally answers right now, we're in a period of maybe experimentation. And there are different tools for experimentation, like uh, friends of mine started one called Time Republic, which is basically like a, with a K at the end, where you can basically, it's online, and um, you create a profile, and instead of using money, you, you exchange hours, you know, so you can give somebody some hours and, and do something for them in return or whatever. I mean, Bitcoin is very interesting. Uh, that's, that's you know, a monetary system. It's a cryptocurrency that was based on the blockchain. And um, it's based on mathematical formula, very complex uh, mathematical equations that require a huge amount of processing power. So there could only be 21 million of them in the world, but they're infinitely subdividable. So in a way, it's almost like more backing it than the dollar, right? Which is just based on, which is infinitely inflatable, you know. Um, so I think what we'll see, we're, see, we're going to see more and more of these uh, experiments, and you know, um, you know, both 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 in terms of financial systems and, and in terms of social uh, systems, ways for people to work together, you know, democratically. I know that you've also spoken something about private property that, and I, and this goes back to. Maybe Bucky Fuller from years ago talking about how uh, what what is private property and what does it actually do in our social structure? Yeah, I mean, you know, so I, I I gave myself the permission in the book to think very freely and and very you know radically, but I, I think you know rationally about a lot of what's happening and, and a number of the thinkers who I who I most uh, admire and respect all really reached a same perspective that, you know, private property in, in an excessive form is, is uh, you know, sort of something that won't allow us to have a truly sustainable society or truly regenerative society. You know, it, it, uh, Rousseau wrote a book called, uh, wrote an essay called The Discourse of the Origin of Inequality. And he found that private property was the, you know, the, the, the you know, somebody separating land and saying, this is mine, created the initial inequality, you know, um, Marx noted that instead of uh, connecting to our senses and our and our feeling of of being alive, people became kind of uh, you know kind of possessed by what he talked about the sense of having, like this this urge to own and control replaced our our innate connection to the world around us. You know, uh, o Oscar Wilde also felt that like uh, you know we needed something more like a kind of uh, you know. Which some people are jokingly called like luxury, you know, fully automated luxury socialism, you know, where, um, yeah, where, where you know, we, we we give up some of our desire to own private wealth 
but in return, we have a society that functions, you know, for, for everybody. So know. in this kind of place or this kind of um, society, community is, is extremely important. And I, I guess one of the basic needs of us is to be loved and to love and to be trusted and respected. And, and this would offer us the opportunity to put more of our energy into that kind of social structure than to hoarding goods and, and, and things, money and, and material things. Yeah, I mean, um, I think that in a, in a way, uh, a lot of the book has been informed by, you know, by visits to an interest in like traditional cultures or tribal societies, you know, that are, that are community-based. Also, I've been visiting a community in Portugal called Tibera, which has sought to create kind of like an alternative social design for a community that also allows for non-possessive, uh, transparent relationships uh, so people can have like multi-partner relationships and so on. And, uh, and, and you know, there's a lot of evidence that when we were nomadic uh, people, you know, tribal nomadic people, the types of relationships we had were, you know, there were looser affiliations. There wasn't this tight, tight idea of the monogamy, you know, the nuclear family and so on. That these are modern constructs in a way. Some have suggested that, okay, we've tried nuclear family for a while now, some decades, and we've discovered it doesn't work. Right. Uh, it, it has failed in some ways as we look at our children and look at the problems that they are having. And uh, so it, let's say this experiment in Portugal. Yeah. Then uh, and you're saying it, it's open, open. It's not monogamous. Right. It's open. So what happens with the children? That's the main sort of thing that that people would say. Well, we need to have one one wife, one husband, and to raise the children and so forth. This is a different model. Yeah, well, in that in that community, the children are raised by the community. I mean, you know, obviously they have a close, particular relationship with their particular mother or whatever. Obviously, but you know, there's a children's compound, so a lot of the kids will live uh, in 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 a children's uh, center uh, when they're when they're you know a little bit older, and um, essentially the the women are therefore kind of freed because um, here, you know, kind of like. Um, I think women. The reason, one reason that open relationships, polyamory, often fail, is that is that women are very scared because they don't want to make a huge, you know, investment in a child that have the man leave them, and then it's like really that's their whole adult life is just is just dealing with that circumstance. So, if you have a community structure and the woman knows that you know any child she has is going to be supported by the whole community, it's a lot safer for her to have the child to continue to. You know, to explore, to to yeah. So so, it seems to be working very very well. And, and it's interesting because it's actually like the most powerful figures in the community are actually the elder women, who kind of are the glue that hold the whole thing together and sort of keep the principles and the, and the ethics and the codes of it kind of kind of in everybody's mind. That bones. goes back to many indigenous cultures where that underneath the structure or holding the foundation of the structure, is the elder women. Right, and you know, that's something that it's like the opposite. Now, like in our society, the elder women are kind of like shunted out and, and you know, uh, the, the different generations. Like if you're in the 20s, you're just with your people in your 20s or your 30s. You don't even see the old people, you know. So so I think that's, um, you know, something that I really don't think – I think it makes people very unhappy, actually. I think we'd be much happier back in that type of multi, multi-generational community structure uh, where there was a, a deeper sense of shared support and uh, recognition of, of people's different – gifts and, and ability. So I guess, yeah, in a way, like, 
I propose in the book, once again, we have to, you know, we, we've got, we're in, in this ideology of modernism and postmodernism that, that progress looks a certain way and it's going to be like more gadgets and more technologies and more isolation, but we don't have to do that. We could stop where we are. We could be like, well, wait a second. We're, we're not only destroying the planet, people aren't even happy in, in the way we're going. So why don't we use our intelligence and, and our, and our you know, everything we've learned from psychology and anthropology and all the other studies we've done and re-engineer our system so that we, 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 we we're happier. May it be so. I'm here with Daniel Pinchback. He's the author of How Soon Is Now? From Personal Initiation to Global Transformation. And to know more about his work, you can go to howsoonisnow.info. Or you can get there through the New Dimensions website, newdimensions.org. I'm Justine Willis-Toms. You're listening to New Dimensions. here with Daniel Pinchback. He's a radical futurist or philosopher and, and the author of How Soon Is Now. And Daniel, um, I know that you feel it's important for us to, and you just had a great riff on imagining a future, a new future, which is, I think, key, uh, like to... to start to develop a better party, as they say. And in, the, in that way that you, you have pointed out, let's say, how we need to have this plan imagined, or some plans imagined, at least some multiple plans imagined in place to fill a void that will be extant when things start to shift in a big way, especially climate change. So let's say you use the uh, example of the fall of the Berlin Wall, Mm -hmm. which I thought was significant. We're all so happy. Oh, the wall fell. Nobody saw it. Well, some people saw it, but but it fell. But what, what was the aftermath of that? What happened in the aftermath? Yeah, so one of the things I look at in the book is um, um, that um, you know we don't know what's going to happen. Like there could be unanticipated massive changes, like the Berlin Wall falling. As far as I know, nobody predicted that you know people were going to rise up and peacefully take the wall down, and they wouldn't be shot at by police, or you know there wouldn't be you know wars or whatever around it. So it just happened. People were done with it. You know, so uh, so that could happen. Something like that could happen again, even in the West. You know, in, in a way with Trump, many people must be having a subliminal realization that this is like. Not tolerable in a way. But the problem is that there needs to be good ideas in place if a crisis happens and change is going to come. So, for instance, like um, starting in the 60s, there were a bunch of right-wing economists, the neoliberal uh, kind of Chicago school, like Milton Friedman. And they didn't like the great society. They didn't like the fact there was like better education for more people. and The middle class was growing and there was more dissent and so on. So they were, they saw that they they couldn't really advance their ideas at that point. So they created academic departments and think tanks and magazines and a whole network of institutions. 
And then they were ready, like for Reagan, and then for the fall of the wall. And then they moved in. Uh, you know, they, they they were like, okay, well, what you do is you privatize all the state-owned resources, you sell them to the highest bidder, you know, you create oligarchies, and that's that's going to be the way forward. You know, so they had a big influence on how the what happened to those countries after the Soviet Union split apart. So very negative influence. The important thing there was that they sold out off, let's say, the commons that yeah. which was owned commonly by everyone. Suddenly, they got sold off to private individuals, the right, highest exactly, bidder. Exactly. But but uh, yeah, and, but also the other, the other point that I was really making was that um, the the you know Milton Friedman said that. Uh, you know, when a crisis comes, the ideas that get applied are the ones that are lying around. So their job was to have their, their ideas ready to be implemented. So and that's one reason why I felt it was really important to get this book out, because I felt like, you know, there's going to be more crises. We need, you know, different ideas about what could what changes could, could happen, you know. Well, that's when things are going well, it's hard to change the system. But when things are breaking down, that's a very, very creative moment yeah. is what you're talking about. And so what you are talking about is to apply our best imagination, our best intelligence toward what really serves us deeply, not not just superficially. Yeah. Well, and then the other problem is that if we don't, you know, like it, it doesn't look like, you know, the ecological crisis is is such a serious thing that unless we really do change direction soon, you know, it's going to hit us like a, like, a, like a brick wall, you know. I remember David Suzuki talking about the ecological crisis. Uh, he's a um, biologist in Vancouver, Canada, and he was talking about how we're, we're headed towards that brick wall in a, in a car, but we're in the trunk <laughs> and not really in the driver's seat. So he was really warning us years and years ago to 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 really take a take a look at it and to do what we can now because this is the time to really make a difference. So I'd like to also say that that you talk about it's not so much a revolution as it is a metamorphosis. Can you say something about that? In my efforts to kind of envision how this could happen, um but I'm very interested in like the evolution of social technologies and the internet. Um, you know, there's like a connection historically between the type of social organization and the type of media that we have. So we could never have had like empires like Rome until we had, unless we had a written code of laws. We could never have had um, nation states, you know, like the European ones and US and all around the world that we have now without the printing press that people could vote and share certain knowledge. And now we have the internet, which is an interactive communications network, kind of like a global uh, ner nervous system. And it, and it points towards, you know, other, other potentials and how we can organize ourselves, how we can make decisions together, how we can exchange value. It could be much more like a participatory direct democracy that scales from local to bioregional to, you know, planetary. And um, yeah, it, it could be that, you know, the kind of solutions that we're going to that we're going to come across are not going to be like a revolution and, and you know, battles and then breakdowns. It might happen like that, but it may be more that we develop new tools that make people's lives better and, and propagate really, really quickly. And also, you know, different ways of approaching the, the crises that we're, that we're facing. But, you know, they, they would ultimately, I think, 
take us away from this current economic system. As an example, like I talk in the book about uh, Regen Villages, the Stanford University professor has created these kind of like modular mass producible housing units that have like uh, composting, you know, aquaponics, uh, renewable energy all built into them. So they're like, you know, totally like resilient and self-sufficient little units. And, you know, so you have all these refugees who are settled in these refugee camps where they can't do anything. You know, what if you could just create these compounds out of out of these uh, regen villages so people could take care of their own basic needs and sort of resettle, you know, rather, rather than being in, in limbo? Um, I encourage people to, to look that up on the Internet and you can see pictures of it. It's regen, R-E-G-E-N dot yeah. org, I think, or com. You can look it up, uh, Google it, and it's wonderful to kind of look at it. And I believe that that really goes back to the, all the ideas that Bucky Fuller was talking about, you know, 40, 50 years ago, uh, that that he envisioned something like that. Yeah, I mean, Buckminster Fuller is, is one of the big inspirations for this book, for sure. You also mentioned briefly something about participatory democracy. Uh-huh. So how do, how would that look different than what we have right now, capitalist democracy? Yeah, well, I mean, some uh, tech companies have been building kind of uh, infrastructure to test out those ideas. There's one for local communities. It's called Lumio, L-O-O-M-I-O dot O-R-G, two O's. And it's actually based on Occupy principles. Uh, so in Occupy, they developed this, you know, decision-making structure where people would, you know, vote yes, no, abstain, or block. And if you block, it means that you really hate the measure. And if it goes through, then you're going to leave the group, you know. So they basically created a little platform where you could take anybody. Like you could you could take all your friends and put them on a Lumio group. And they could start making decisions together. Like, do we all want to wear red socks Tuesday? Or do we all want to go to this, you know, protest or whatever? So... So Lumio is, is interesting. It's actually being used by a movement in Spain called Podemos, which is a, a grassroots um, le- sort of leftist movement. Uh, Podemos means we can. So it's being used as their organizing tool for local communities. And another one is called, uh, from Argentina, it's called Democracy OS. And that's for larger, it could be for municipalities. And there the idea is like, you know, we have to think about our governments and our voting system. It's very antiquated technology. I mean, the governments were formed in the 18th century when things moved at like horse and buggy speed and, you know, um, and there's no reason now that we should only be able to vote on one of every two corrupt choices every four years. You know, we, we should be able to be ongoingly participatory in, in our decisions that affect us. So the Democracy OS platform allows for that. It would be like, okay, like maybe I know that I'm not an expert on water, but I know that my friend Fred, you know, has really studied it. So I proxy my vote in that area to him. But then later on, if I learn that Fred is taking a kickback from Pepsi, I don't have to wait like four years to vote Fred out of office. I just immediately take my vote away and give it to somebody else. So it'd be more like an instantaneous infrastructure for uh, decision-making. So with that, there are two things that occur to me. Uh, It needs an informed citizenry. So we need to really commit ourselves to being informed, not maybe on everything, but to 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 rely on respected friends and coworkers and yeah, colleagues. We, 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 basically, we either have to get stupider or we have to get smarter. I mean, we're now we're getting stupider. So, are we stupid enough to like you know become slaves to a kind of technocratic, authoritarian, fascist regime? That's kind of the way it's going, and maybe that's the way it's going to go. 
but my book is positive and alternative, which is harder. It requires us to, you know, embrace our responsibility for for understanding what's happening, for caring for the world, you know, for you know, looking after our own communities, for knowing things and, and so on. And you know, that's like Buckminster Fuller also really said that like you know, humans are meant to be generalists. Like we have the capacity to learn and understand everything. And we have a society that's turned everybody into kind of a specialist. So they only think that they're supposed to know about one little arena. And, you know, that's one reason why I really did this book, because I didn't know anything about political theory or agriculture or energy or the ecological crisis. I was just like, look, like, you know, how do I learn about this stuff? How do I put it together? If I can understand it, then maybe I can help other people also understand it. That's great. That's great. Let's just talk about energy. If we had renewable energy right now, if 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 we just suddenly no more oil and, and energy was free all over the planet, would we be able to cope with that psychologically or or with with our present consciousness? Is yeah, there I, something I think, else? I think if, we, if, if we had windmills and solar, we'd be great. I mean, I, in the book, I look at this, you know, some people talk about like Nassim Harabin is somebody who's talked a lot about it, although he hasn't really been able to, you know, pr the proof is in the pudding, he hasn't been able to show us a device. But this idea that maybe we're ultimately going to be able to, you know, uh, create an unlimited energy based on like quantum fluctuations in the vacuum or something. You know, if we had unlimited energy right now, like if we had a free energy device, I think we would be in trouble at this level of consciousness because that would just let us to you know, mine the last crystals and get the last fish and so on. So, you know, it, it may be, that's why I look at this whole process is maybe it's like, you know, maybe there's a wisdom in nature that actually isn't, you know, just in natural systems that, you know, but maybe we're extension of a natural system and there's a wisdom in the process that we have to go through this kind of uh, initiation or, or, you know, uh, turmoil or, or, you know, a certain level of, of sacrifice and suffering so that we are prepared and primed for, for you know, a, a greater capacity later. So I think that that's a really important point and, and it gets to the whole idea of rite of passage, initiation. And I'd like to have you talk a little bit about your view and your experience about in, of initiation. I want to remind our listeners that I'm here with Daniel Pinchback. He's the author of How Soon Is Now? From Personal Initiation to Global Transformation. And if you want to know more about his work, you can go to his website, howsoonisnow.info. Or you can get there through the New Dimensions website, newdimensions.org. I'm Justine Willis-Toms. You're listening to New Dimensions.
I'm here with Daniel Pinchback. He's the author of How Soon Is Now? Daniel, we're talking about initiation and, and being a, a collective consciousness ready for this change. And, and let's go back to initiation. What In indigenous culture, what did initiations serve, these rites of passage? What, how did they serve? Um, yeah, I mean, you find like initiations like in cultures all around the world, particularly for men, although for you know women also. And um, the idea was that to you know make the boundary between like adolescence and adulthood, people needed to go through a kind of culturally created ordeal that often involved uh, or generally involved you know reaching altered states of consciousness, visionary states. So it could be with uh, psychedelic plants like ayahuasca or peyote or mushrooms. Could be through like fasting and walkabouts or sun dances, where you're actually like uh, you know your pectoral muscles are, are skewered and you're on a tree for 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 days. And um, you know, I guess we tend to think that it's just a cultural process, but but actually, it might almost have like a neurophysiological basis, where like the part of our brain that makes us most distinctly human, which is like the prefrontal cortex, allows us to use language and plan for the long term, and but also gives us a very kind of you know, strong sense of our ego identity, of a separate identity, almost so strong that, uh, you know, we feel alienated or, or detached in a way um, and uh, from others. You know, but when you have an experience of cosmic consciousness or, or whatever, or transpersonal consciousness or connection to nature through something like psychedelics, you break through that ego structure. And therefore you recognize that it's not just about you, you know, you're actually just, you know, a, a spirit that's connected to the evolution of these other spirits in your tribe and in the larger community of life. And, and then you can make decisions that are that are more responsible for the whole. So, so in, that, in a way, we look at Trump, for instance, as like the apotheosis of the, you know, somebody who's trapped in their ego, who's like a kid alt, who's, who's totally sees the world through self-interest, who really, you know, doesn't really have that idea of like, you know, what's my, what's my role in the community of life, you know? So the, uh, I, I think of the, concept of empathy, that somehow this creates in some way more empathy. Uh, as you say, if, if the egoic structure starts to break down, one would see the world differently. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. Yeah. So, uh, yeah. And I'm thinking also, you, you mentioned that mostly these initiations are done with men. And I think about women. Women have these initiations, first of all, Every month, yeah. once they come into yeah. their menses. And if those women who have actually given birth, that certainly is a rite of passage yeah. in the same way. And I'm also thinking about the idea of if we are going towards a very new collective cultural society, it's like we are in a, a, a birth collectively a birth tunnel right now and in that birthing there ain't no going back i mean if you we're right in the middle of it and it's painful there's there is pressures there's but but there's no way in that like an actual physical birth that a baby goes back up into the womb right so do you have any thoughts on that um yeah i mean i, I mean yeah we're going to kind of we have to go through this process and um you know, it's like we're not going to go back to being tribal people, you know, where, 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 you know, unless there's like a massive, you know, breakdown of our support systems or whatever. I mean, you know, ho hopefully, 
yeah, ho- hopefully there, there's, a, as I said, like an evolutionary process that's happening. And, you know, the, we can look at the last couple of centuries and we can see this tremendous momentum, um, you know, the discovery, you know, even though the, the, you know, as I write about in other books, the discovery of psychedelics in the modern world and how those have impacted our consciousness and the development of the internet and how we now, you know, as we're having, entering this period of, of crisis, we have this collective nervous system where we can share ideas and, and, and tools instantly and so on. So, yeah, so hopefully there's a, there's, a, there's, there's a teleology in a way to it, like a purpose to it, which is to, I hope, bring us to being kind of like a truly planetary civilization where, you know, we, we care for each other collectively. Um, I know that you've used the analogy of the different institutions that can be used in some ways. I mean, they are set up. They can be retooled, let's say. So if you take um, you take the um, nervous system of the body, that's like the Internet, uh-huh. and then you take the uh, sanitation, all the sanitation industry that that's like uh, – you get the analogy I'm going for. Can yeah. you describe that more fully for us? Sure. Yeah. Well, in the book, I look at if if we think about humanity as a giant organism, then what are the sort of the primitive versions of organs in that organism? And in a way, there are a lot of them are multinational corporations. It's like energy companies are kind of like the circulation system with the blood and so on, and media companies are kind of like uh, there are perceptual mechanisms, the eyes and the ears of the body, which take in like raw sense data, then they convert it into kind of directives that the whole, the brain, that the whole thing follows. But at the moment, it's all perverse because it's all based on financial capital, profit, control, you know. So um, so we're not getting the, where the messages are, are deformed or, or, or you know, uh, corrupted, you know. But if you look at the history of evolution, it turns out now, like you know, biologists talk about that cooperation is is more the nature of of, of uh, successful evolution rather than competition. Like you know, co- cooperation ultimately outcompetes competition. And as I talk about in the book, like we have so much cooperation going on that we don't even think about. Like you know, for me to drink this coffee cup, you know, the coffee came from Italy, you know, the the you know, or Africa, you know, the cup came from China, you know, the, the oil that makes it comes from Russia, you know, the water is local, you know, so like a whole world of cooperation is involved even in the simple act of like having a cup of coffee. So that's pretty extraordinary. And it's very much like, you know, how things work in our bodies that are invisible to us, you know, our bodies are organizing all these things all the time. But yeah, but but in terms of our global paradigm on a civilizational level, it's still based on domination, exploitation, and control. And we also really have to realize that we in the developed world of the West have been the, the beneficiaries to a great extent of, of a system of domination and exploitation and, uh, and of the waste of CO2. And we have a lot of responsibility for this for the situation. That's where like I get frustrated, for instance, with the Northwest culture of like hippies and the kind of luxury hippiedom and so on. I feel that in a way I was happy when Harbin, terrible to say, but I was almost happy when Harbin Hot Springs burned down. I mean, not that I am, mean, I loved Harbin, but I feel that energy that's been held here gets a little bit insular. And we need people who've gotten the message now to go out to the red states or, you know, the you know Middle East or wherever and bring the seeds of change and healing and transformation to these other cultures uh, because that that's, you know, I, I feel that uh, what happened with the election, tr- there's a tremendous frustration on the part of the middle of the country. They're aware that this 
progress has been happening on, on the you know, the West Coast, the East Coast. You know, money has flooded here. Or, you know, developments, yoga, you know, culturally, spiritually, and financially, and they've just been left out. And they're given two crappy choices between like you know a horrible Trump or horrible Hillary. And they're like, we'll just take the why should we settle for the lesser evil? We'll just say, you know, screw it to the whole system. You know, and and um, and so I think that it's the cultural elites who've, you know, supposed to be the more conscious elements who really haven't really been showing up and doing what needs to be done to, like, heal all these divides in the world. Um, what about the uh, letter that uh, Zuckerberg wrote, who's the creator of the uh, of Facebook? What, what did you think of that letter? That... I was not very impressed by that letter. I didn't uh -huh. think it meant very much. I mean, he talked about communities, but he's, you know, like, for instance, these guys never talk about wealth inequality. I mean, you know, as a, as a, as a you know, I mean, you know, Zuckerberg's, the fa Facebook depended on the public infrastructure of the internet. I mean, the guy who invented the internet, Timothy Berners-Lee, you know, didn't try to privatize or patent the internet. He was like, this is a resource for humanity. And so now these guys have made huge fortunes by privatizing the commons, essentially, and closing the commons. And I don't, I don't think it's right, really. I think that, you know, what Facebook is, and, and I, but I reward their, you know, intelligence, their acumen and so on. But I think now they have to go through a shift in consciousness and realize that, like, you know, what Facebook is, is essentially like public infrastructure in private hands that, that is being, you know, used to support this capitalist system, which is destructive of the planet, you know, and, and we need public infrastructure that is going to really, you know, allow for these, these other emergences of, you know, for instance, imagine if Facebook could be used as a tool to deal with the ecological crisis. Like, you know, every time the one and a half billion people a day who use Facebook opened up the tool, it could say, hey, guys, guess what? We've overshot the limits of the planet. We are now in a serious problem. We can change it, but it's going to take concerted effort. This is what you need to know about what's happening globally. This is what you need to know about what's happening locally. Here's a way you can do, forget about using your own car all the time. You can do ride shares. We can, everybody's connected now. Here's the ride shares. You can share your tools. Why buy a new drill or a new washing machine? Use your neighbors, connect, you know, like, et cetera, et cetera. Like it could, you know, the internet could be used as the infrastructure for people to create cooperative and participatory decision-making structures, share resources efficiently, identify the types of things that need to be done ecologically, whether it's bioremediation or permaculture or, or urban farming or whatever, and then, and then, and then make those the priorities. Oh, great. Uh, so that's, I, we just have, you know, just a few seconds left is there any one piece of advice you would give to an individual of what an individual could do to support this? I mean, um, they first need to have a comprehensive uh, understanding of the whole design. And I feel my book is helpful for that. But then there's also other books like, you know, uh, Buckminster Fuller's work, Operation Spaceship Earth, Utopia or Oblivion are still very relevant. Uh, you know, post-capitalism by Paul Riffman, by Paul Mason, the, I think it's called The Fourth Industrial Revolution by Jeremy Rifkin, you know, McDonough's book, Cradle to Cradle. I think that there's a certain level of education that people need to do, and then they need to integrate that and then think about their talents and skills and capacities and that, how they want to uh, kind of uh, apply them. Apply them. Yeah. Thank you so much, Daniel, for being with us today. I've been with Daniel Pinchbeck, and he is the author of How Soon Is Now?, if you'd like to know more about his work, you can go to his website, howsoonisnow.info. By the way, he spells his last name Pinchbeck, P-I-N-C-H-B-E-C-K.
You can also go to the New Dimensions website to t- plug into his website. I'm Justine Willis-Toms. You've been listening to New Dimensions. This is program number 3604. New Dimensions Radio has been making a difference on our planet since 1973, thanks to the generosity of our listeners. You, too, can help make a difference with a tax-deductible donation or membership. Please visit our website, newdimensions.org, and just click the Donate button. You can also subscribe to our free weekly podcasts and find over a thousand hours of audio dialogues in our searchable archive. New Dimensions is produced by New Dimensions Radio in Santa Rosa, California, USA. Our executive producer is Justine Willis-Toms. Our post-production editor is Lou Judson. This program was recorded at Strawberry Hill Productions, a full-service podcast production studio in Novato, California. We sincerely thank all of you who have supported us by being members of Friends of New Dimensions, as well as members of our affiliate stations. My name is Dan Drayson. On behalf of everyone at New Dimensions, whose endeavors make this program possible, I'm wishing you well. New Dimensions Radio is an independent producer supported by listener contributions. To find out more about the program you've just heard, to subscribe to our free weekly newsletter and our New Dimensions and New Dimensions Cafe podcasts, and to access thousands of other programs in the New Dimensions archive, please visit our website, newdimensions.org. That's newdimensions.org. Or call us at 707-468-5215. That's 707-468-5215. Please join us next time as we explore New Dimensions. New Dimensions.